I appreciate Frank's heart so much. He's a dear friend of ours, and we've been to his work in Berlin, and uh, I just appreciate what he's now doing, planting churches all across uh, German-speaking countries. And uh, if the Lord is stirring in your spirit to be a part of that ministry, maybe financially, prayer-wise, maybe to go and visit, just let that uh, take some uh, root in your heart so that uh, you may be able to follow what it is that God is doing in your life in partnership with Frank. I do appreciate your grace and patience with our technical issues. Sorry, Frank, about some of those things. We're still learning how to use all the, th- all the stuff, and I'm using a new microphone today. Uh, and so if halfway through here I rip it off of my head and go get that other one, you'll understand, right? Um, I think we'll have it all pretty much lined out and perfect maybe the Sunday before Jesus comes, okay? So that's right. In your bulletin, there is this little pamphlet that says, uh, serve, and I just want to speak to that for just a few moments. Um, you'll find on there, well, let me let you know this, that since we've opened the building the end of June here, uh, our church has grown by about 25%, which means we've added close to 100 new people in average attendance, and that creates uh, some need for people in different areas as far as greeters. We have more ways to get in and out of the building. Uh, for children's ministries, a lot of different things here. And sometimes people say, you know, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I be used uh, by, the, by, the king, by the Lord in the kingdom's work? So we've been very specific here. You can see that children has 13 openings. Now, that may sound like a lot, but children's ministry has about 50 volunteers on a regular weekly basis, and so there's a need for that. And uh, also uh, openings in the greeter ministry. You just need to have a smile and a firm handshake there. On the other side, there are mission committee places, if you have a heart for missions, to join there. Uh, Life groups, we'd like to see our life groups expand uh, to about 20 groups, and so we need more host homes and more leaders and those kinds of things. Also, you can see needs in worship arts and in youth. So we give you that very specifically to take and pray about and see how God may be able to use the gifts that he's given you to help serve the body. Uh, There's also numerous ways we can serve in the community. Um, There's a need for mentors at Frost Elementary. We've adopted Frost as a a school that we uh, partner with and uh, support, and we provide mentors there. And some mentors have had to step out this year, and uh, there's there's a need for that to give 30 minutes a week in order to be able to make a difference in an at-risk kid's life. So please consider that. Also, Fall Festival coming up at the end of October. It's our community outreach on October 31st, and we need volunteers for that. I think there's a sign-up sheet out there, or also you can sign up on the uh, church website. So please take that, pray about it, and see where God may be able to uh, use you. We are in the book of Galatians, and we're walking straight through the book this fall, and we find ourselves in the second chapter of Galatians today. And you can prepare uh, to be there in your own Bibles. Paul has been addressing a problem within these churches of Galatia, Uh, The problem that he is addressing is this. Some leaders who were Jews were trying to say that in order to be right with God, you not only had to come to faith in Christ Jesus, but you had to follow the Jewish way of life, the law. Gentiles who were coming to faith in this new Christian movement now were being met with all of these heavy requirements of the Jewish religion, or they were just not going to be measured up. God was not going to be pleased with them is what they were being taught. And in the first part of chapter 2, as we saw last week, Paul is telling uh, the Galatian churches in this letter of a meeting that he had in Jerusalem with church leaders about this issue and that they had decided that grace 
was enough. The grace of Jesus was enough. And so Paul, in order to bolster his argument even a little bit more, he's now going to move to another meeting that he had in the city of Antioch. And he continues that in our passage today. And this is a, uh, this is a meeting in which he encounters uh, and, con- and uh, confronts the apostle Peter, who is in the wrong. So he says this in Galatians 2.11, but when Cephas, and Cephas is the Aramaic translation of the word Peter, I wouldn't read too much into it why Paul calls him Cephas. Uh, There's a lot of speculation. Cephas means the rock, just as Peter does. Peter's Greek. Cephas is Aramaic. Uh, Some have speculated that he calls him Cephas because Peter's acting in old Jewish uh, traditional ways, and so he's going to give him his old Jewish traditional name rather than his Greek name. So uh, we don't know that, but uh, he does call him Cephas. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, or he was wrong. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So what's the problem here? Well, it's legalism. Aren't you glad we don't have any legalism today? It's this legalism that produces hypocrisy. Now, Peter knows better, and that's what Paul's pointing out. Peter, you ate with Gentiles. You, you gave up all of your Jewish exclusivity. You've been eating with the Gentiles. And so why are you now going back on that? Peter knew that there was no difference between Jews and Gentiles and Believers in God's eyes because their acceptance was based solely on Christ, not their heritage or their background. And although he knew this, his behavior was now saying something different. He was being hypocritical. So what can we learn from this? These first uh, three, three verses here. Well, the first thing is, is that legalism can lure anybody. Legalism can get to anyone at any stage of their spiritual walk. Peter was the rock, the great apostle, yet here he was subtly being led to behave in such a way that pleasing people now became very important to him. And these people were not even agreeing with the core of the gospel message. They may have been old friends of his people he grew up with. And he no doubt wanted to be accepted by them, yet that meant compromising and not standing firm on the core of the gospel. And and instead of standing up to the legalists, what did he do? He wanted to be accepted by them. And so if I just kind of withdraw a little bit from my Gentile brothers and sisters, maybe I can be accepted by both parties. Ever been there? A little compromise here will make me more acceptable to worldly things. And church leaders, church people, Christians have to be firmly committed to a grace alone message. 
Because there's this constant pressure to give in to agendas, to make other things important. Peer pressure, denominational pressure, cultural pressure, the need to be liked, accepted. Another thing that we learn from this is that legalism is contagious. Legalism is contagious. If I find myself trapped in believing that there's something I'm doing that's producing more of God's favor upon me, I will impose that on others. It says that the rest of the Jews joined Peter in the hypocrisy, even good old encourager Barnabas. You know, Barnabas, we get the idea that he's just a nice guy in Scripture. He's always encourager. It's what he's doing. He's always encouraging other people. But now he is kind of buying into the whole legalism message. So do people, churches, denominations, movements compromise the gospel today with legalism? I mean, the issue can be anything, you know. It can be getting involved in ministry. If you're a real good Christian, you're always going to be involved in ministry. If you're not involved in ministry, you're a subpar Christian. You, you got to get with it. Oh, it can be certain spiritual gifts. I have certain spiritual gifts. You don't. Boy, you ought to pray for what I have because what I have is really cool and what you have is a little deficient. It can be believing certain doctrines. Oh, you don't believe that? Oh, I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. Anything uh, that is used to make one Christian feel superior over another is legalism. And sometimes, folks, it sounds so good. Yeah, I ought to believe that. Yeah, I ought to go with that. Or certain personalities are, are so persuasive and we want to be liked by them and we don't want to feel like an idiot and we don't want to feel like we're not spiritual. And so, yeah, okay. We don't want to confront and stand up and say, so we just go along. Third thing we need to understand is that legalism is always divisive. Always. You see, Peter and, G, uh, Peter and the Jews here were pulling away from those Christian brothers and sisters who just happened to be of another background or race because they weren't following the rules. They weren't being good Christian people. And so Peter and his friends now were being prejudiced. Is there prejudice in the church today? It can come in so many forms. It can be sectarian. You know, most churches exist because they felt that other churches at some point were just insufficient. You can look back through church history, and most denominations were started because people left some other group or some other denomination over some belief or lack of emphasis on a certain doctrine and what grows up around this over time is that every church feels the need to stress their distinctions or where we're different from everybody else, that's why everybody ought to come here, rather than what we agree on. Prejudice can be based on class or race or even personality types. You know, some churches tend to, to gather a lot of feelers, and some churches begin to gather a lot of thinkers, and some churches gather a lot of doers. And the feeling churches, boy, they have a lot of fun on Sunday morning. You know what I'm talking about? 
it's wild and crazy and emotional, and then you got all the thinkers in one church, and theirs is exactly the opposite. And then you got the doers that really don't care a whole lot about Sunday morning at all. It's about if, thinking if we could just gather everybody's combined efforts here, we could go out and make a difference in our community. Why are we in here today? And then you got the feeler churches and the thinking churches and the doing churches all thinking that they're better than the others, right? Legalism always divides. Some churches are made up of working class people, others of wealthier people. Some churches exclude others based on race because they just feel more comfortable around people like themselves. I've been in churches where people would accept others based on their beliefs. If you didn't believe like they did about things like certain secondary doctrines or politics or even how to school your kids, you were intentionally left out. Treated as though you just didn't belong here. And one of the more subtle ways, and probably one of the more dangerous ways, to lapse into Peter's sin is simply to take our preferences so seriously that we attach spiritual significance to them. An example of this would be someone who likes music that is highly emotional and expressive and contemporary in church. and They feel spiritually superior to those unenlightened churches that still have organs and sing out of a book. <laughs> and they're on a mission to convert as many as possible to whatever their little doctrine is or their personal experience is because it's superior. Pride is, there is a root of pride in the whole legalism mindset. It's ugly. And it, it's always baiting us, always baiting us to impose an agenda, push an agenda, impose it, and, or worse, to attach something that's just a preference to the grace, the amazing grace of Jesus. And Paul is not having any of it. He opposes Peter to his face. I wish I could have been there, don't you? <laughs> Paul and Peter. And from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, Paul is recounting what he had said in the confrontation with Peter and Antioch. But as we read it, you're going to see that <laughs> he's... He's reciting it here or writing it in such a way that it not only pertains to Peter there, it pertained to what was going on in the churches of Galatia, and it pertains to Christianity at large, and it pertains to you and me today. He says this, starting in verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compelled the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing, verse 16 is key, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we, us Jews, may be justified by faith alone in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh 
not even a Jew, will be justified. And But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. For I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Uh, There's a few theological terms in this passage that uh, I want to drive the rest of the message today. I want us to really understand these truths because I I firmly believe that when we understand these things, it, it really establishes a perspective of our Christian life that is godly, that is grace-oriented, that is freedom from law-based, behavior-based Christianity. The first one is justification, and it's found in verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. The first thing you notice is that he says the word justified three times in the verse. (laughs) He wants us to get this. And if you also notice, he uses the word faith three times in the verse. The Greek word for believe is the same root word as faith. So what does it mean to be justified through faith in Christ? What is justification? Are Christians justified before God? Well, the thing that we need to understand is that it's a legal term. Justification is to be declared innocent of all sin. It's a judge dropping a gavel and saying, innocent, not guilty. I love this from James Boyce's commentary on the passage. He says this, such a term, justification, involves an objective standard. In other words, this is what somebody who is justified looks like. This is who they are. There's an objective standard. And since righteousness is understood to be the unique characteristic of God, the standard must be the divine standard. In other words, only God is righteous, so that's the standard. How are you doing with that? He says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, so none of us can be righteous. Not a one of us. But in Christ, God declares all righteous. All righteous who believe, imputing, giving freely divine righteousness to them in Jesus Christ. Paul, in making his argument to these Judaizers or these people that are trying to impose Jewish law upon the new Christians, justification is paramount to the argument. He's emphatically preaching to everyone, including Peter, that a person is righteous not based on anything that you can do, unless you're God. It is only through the divine person of Jesus Christ, the perfect one, he is the standard, only he possesses righteousness, so only in him are we going to ever 
see righteousness in our life. He is the only way to be innocent of sin, which is what righteousness means, justification. Justification and righteous, by the way, are the same word. (laughs) And then he says the avenue to justification is faith alone. Another theological word, faith. Faith is the full conviction that something is true. It's the assurance beyond all doubt. It's the entrusting of everything you have on this that I know to be true. It's this deep-seated conviction that is so real that I'm willing to stake everything on it. So how many things can you put faith in? How many things in this world could you really stake everything upon? On the flip side of that, Have you ever known someone who said, well, I tried Christianity. It just didn't work for me. I gave it a go. (laughs) I'm here to tell you that people who come to faith as some kind of mm, self-improvement plan, maybe Christianity, maybe Jesus, this whole thing will make my life a little bit better. Some people say I'll be richer. Some people say I won't ever get sick. You know, there's a lot of good value to this, and so I'm going to try it. Is that faith? Is that faith? No, they don't don't become true Christians, and no no wonder it doesn't work. There's no expression of faith that Jesus is real, and everything he said is absolutely true, and only in him can a person find their way. Faith is not walking in a, I guess the way I think of it is, not walking in the shallow end, just testing the water, seeing if it's something you want to really get in. It's It's jumping in the deep end, not knowing what's underneath there, (laughs) but knowing the one who told you to jump, right? When you look at verses 17 and 19, they're kind of set up verses for the great verse 20. Paul knows what his uh, opponents are thinking. The opponents to Paul are thinking this. His theology of justification by faith alone, apart from any moral requirements, is absolutely dangerous. It is absolutely dangerous. And I'm here to tell you, it is. The argument that they would put to him is this. Your doctrine of justification by faith only is dangerous because when you eliminate the law you eliminate a man's sense of moral responsibility and if a person could be just simply accounted and declared innocent righteous simply by believing that Christ died for them why then should they bother keeping the law or for that matter why should they bother to live by any standard why should they have any allegiance to morality There's absolutely no reason for them to ever be good. The result of your doctrine is that all men will believe in Christ, but after, they can just do whatever they want to do because they're scot-free. Doesn't that sound logical? Think of it this way. A man is caught stealing. He's caught red-handed. In fact, he's a professional thief. And yet when he gets to court... He's declared innocent of the charge. 
not only that, the judge says, no matter how you live the rest of your life, you can never be brought up on charges of stealing ever again in your life. You are completely pardoned for now and for all eternity. Now think about that for a minute. Put yourself in that courtroom. That thief turns to his lawyer and says, did I hear that correct? I can't ever be convicted or of stealing for the rest of my life, no matter what I do. Did I hear that right? The lawyer says, yeah, you heard it right. So if that thief knows he can never be tried for stealing the rest of his life, what do you think he's going to start doing a lot of? That's the fear of these legalistic Jews. If we just tell people they're completely forgiven by God's grace, that they've been set completely free from the penalty of sin, what motivates them to be good? We've got to have some rules. How many times have churches said that through the years? We've just got to have some rules. Is it true that righteousness is ours simply by believing in Christ? Yeah. Doesn't it also make sense? Uh, doesn't it also make it true that our behavior, good or bad, isn't connected to our righteousness because it's imputed, it's given freely by God through Christ? Yes. So doesn't it make the logical argument that if righteousness has nothing to do with my behavior, I'm I'm free to behave any way I want? Woohoo! What does Paul say? <laughs> May it never be. Absolutely not. God forbid. He says it. You can go over to Romans 5 and 6 and read this whole argument again. That's the way Romans 6 starts. God forbid. Absolutely not. There's, justification is only half of the story, folks. Without the other half, this argument doesn't make sense. Through grace, you are legally acquitted for sin and free behaviorally, but he says that's only part of what happens in grace. Don't stop there. Verse 18 and 19. If I rebuild what has been destroyed, in other words, if I rebuild the life of sin that I say has been destroyed, I prove myself to still be in it. There hasn't been something in me that's changed. I see grace as a get-out-of-jail-free card, a ticket to heaven. He says, but I died to behavior-based living so that I may live a new life. The whole system of behavior-based worth has been rendered dead by the grace of Christ, and now worth comes to me through the life of Jesus. I'm a new person. The thief doesn't continue to steal because why? He's no longer a thief. This is the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration means the old me died and the new me was born. Amen and amen. Who I used to be is no more. I am a new creation in Christ. I have a new identity. 
I've been declared innocent, yes, of sin and the penalty of sin, but I've also been birthed with the Spirit of God. And he sums it up in this glorious presentation of the gospel, perhaps the pivot verse of the book. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. By the way, do you have this verse memorized? (laughs) This is one of those verses, just put it in your heart, just walk through the day saying this, when temptation rears its ugly head, that's not me anymore. (laughs) You can't get me, same old temptation, that's who I used to be, that's not who I am now. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I, the old me who lives, but Christ lives in me. Not my efforts to duplicate the life of Christ, the actual life of Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, this earth suit, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm still not putting any confidence in me, who loved me. And gave himself up for me. So even though I'm justified, completely free from this punishment, I can't live that way anymore because it's not who I am anymore. My identity used to be that of sinner, and so sin was natural. It's who I was. But because of the wonderful grace of Christ Jesus in my life, I'm just not that person anymore. He died. And Jesus changed my identity. He replaced the deadness in me with his life. So what is it that you get all upset about? What is it that you wish others would see the way you do? Probably reveals some legalism in your life. If everybody could just be like me. It'd be a great world. Why can't they? Maybe you think God ought to treat you better. That probably reveals legalism. Do you have behavioral standards for God? Legalism, folks, infects us all at some point. It's so subtle. It produces that frustration, that anger, that depression or unforgiveness or a controlling spirit. It's bondage. It makes people feel sorry for themselves and wonder why other people are paying, not paying them more attention. And it can make people needy and manipulative. It's the exact opposite of freedom. That only comes in in the form of grace. Complete and total freedom. It's like the song says, we're forgiven. Because Jesus took on him our condemnation. You and I are accepted. Can you believe that? I mean, you know you, don't you? I know me. And we're accepted because he was rejected. And we're alive. Why are we alive? Because he died. I mean, when you just ponder those 
feels crazy. He loves us so much. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? So my call to you today is to set aside and, and, and pray that God would identify those areas of legalism, those areas where you are producing frustration or whatever. Lord, I'm not free. I know I'm in bondage. Stuff makes me mad. I control others. I, I wish it, I want to be free. Teach me about grace. Father, as we are, as I am learning through this walk through Galatians and the study of grace, I'm understanding that there's so much about grace that, that I don't know. So much about grace that I want to know. I want to understand how grace can can drive everything in my life. I want to understand how grace can teach me to say no to the temptation to control and manipulate. And I want to understand how the, the freedom that grace provides can be mine. I want to know how to show grace when wronged. And I know it only comes from the freedom from this, this, this pursuit of behavior-based living, legalism. Father, if I could pray one prayer, I, I think today my prayer would be to remove legalism from your church in all of its forms. Not just this church body, but every church body. So the denominations would start loving each other and we would unite around you and you alone. Our heart breaks, Father, for, for some of the stuff that's happened. And when we take this, this message from Paul here and this message about this confrontation seriously, and I pray, Father God, that you would work it in our spirit and our heart. Help us to understand who we are in you. Help us understand what you've done for us. Give us new handles to get that today. New ways of understanding. Thank you, Jesus. Let's stand together. Let's sing that song again. I am forgiven. Because you were forsaken.